This is our fourth and final time in the book of Ruth, and I, I approach that with some excitement and also some sadness to finish this book. The story of Ruth happened during the days of the Judges, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. I hope you know the story well. If you don't, this story follows one family as they escaped famine in Israel by fleeing to Moab, but death followed them there, found them there. And so in this family, the father, Elimelech, and his two sons both died. And so as a result, the mother, Naomi, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law are left destitute there in Moab. But the crops begin to grow again in Israel. The famine is over, and so Naomi decides to return. Initially, she didn't want either of her Moabite daughters-in-law to go with her. She felt like there was nothing for them in Israel because God is against her. Uh, But Ruth insisted, and she returned with Naomi to Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was starting. Ruth left behind her family, her gods, and gave herself for Naomi's good while trusting Naomi's God. In chapter 2, Ruth goes out into the fields to provide for herself and Naomi, and in God's sovereignty, she happens to walk into the field of a man named Boaz. And all day that first day, he goes out of his way to show kindness to her, even though she's a foreigner. And it's not until she gets home that night and talks things over with her mother-in-law that she learns she has a special, close relationship with this guy, Boaz. In fact, he, he's their relative. He's one of their redeemers. Um, and this is a, so this is a person that God has given the, the duty and responsibility and, and the right to, to restore poor relatives from destitution. And it's really modeled, the Redeemer is modeled on what God did for Israel, restoring them from slavery in Egypt. In chapter 3, last time we were together, Ruth had spent weeks providing for herself and Naomi by working in Boaz's fields. But the harvest is now over, and Naomi is... Uh, ready to see some things moving forward. So she convinces Ruth to surprise Boaz in the middle of the night with an offer of marriage. And everything went exactly according to plan until Boaz reveals that while he is a close relative, he's not the closest one. And so before he can redeem them and marry her, he has to make sure that that closest relative doesn't also want to do this. But Boaz promises that either way, he's going to make sure that what Ruth needs gets done. Regardless of what it means for him, his greatest concern is that Ruth flourish among God's people. All right, so let's jump into the story, starting with verse 1 of chapter 4. Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, that's the closest relative, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now remember, there is no gap of time between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. It was just last night that Ruth met Boaz on the threshing floor. And it was early this morning before any of us were awake that Ruth went home to wait for news from Boaz, who has just now come to the city gate to get everything sorted out. All right, verse 3. Then he, that's Boaz, said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, 
is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, that should surprise us a little bit, right? I mean, why does Naomi even have land to sell? Okay, we would think that Elimelech, her husband, would have sold that land as a last resort before moving from Israel to Moab in the time of famine. So it's, it's not clear, but whatever the exact situation, bottom line, there's this piece of land which belonged to Elimelech, and it is the responsibility and the right of the closest relative to purchase it in order to keep the land inheritance inside the, the, the larger family. If you remember, we looked at this uh, earlier in Leviticus 25, the Lord said this, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So, so a family becomes poor in Israel and they feel they need to sell their land to get some more money. In Naomi's case, it seems like her land is not yet sold. Rather, it's just been listed. You might say it's on Zillow, right? It's there. You can see it. Hasn't been purchased. However, the, the poor seller's closest relative can redeem the land. They can buy the land from the person who bought it. Or as it seems in Naomi's case, they can actually buy it proactively from the poor seller directly. And in this way, the land can be preserved within the larger family to whom God had given this land as an inheritance. All right, so with that in mind, let's read verse 3 again. Then he, Boaz, said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, that's the Redeemer, said, I will redeem it. So the Redeemer really likes this deal. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So after the Redeemer quickly agrees to buy this land, Boaz adds, that as the Redeemer, the land will not be his only responsibility. He must also marry Ruth. Now, why Boaz waited to mention Ruth until the Redeemer had agreed is not clear. Okay? Perhaps Boaz didn't think the Redeemer would want to redeem the land, but he does. And so Boaz explains that if you, know, if you redeem the land, you also have to, you have to marry Ruth. Now, we talked about this kind of, of marriage back when we were in chapter 2. According to the law, when a married man dies childless, his brother marries the widow, and then the first son born to that marriage carries the name of the dead brother. That marriage of the brother to the widow is called a, a Leverite marriage. Okay? And while the law doesn't address the exact situation we have here, it's not exactly the same, it still seems to be some kind or some form of that that special marriage. So when this redeemer redeems the land of Elimelech's family line, he must also preserve that line by marrying Ruth. Now, the redeemer seems very unaware of this, right? Seems kind of takes him off guard. Okay? But Boaz is not just making stuff up. He's not just coming up with reasons to try to get him to, to not do this. Okay? If he were making this up, then either the redeemer or the ten elders who are witnessing this would surely stand up and object 
to, to this sudden new requirement that no one has ever heard of before. Okay? So this requirement to marry Ruth must be a valid and accepted uh, application of the law in this context. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All right, this is, the, this is the exciting moment we've been waiting for, right? Boaz wants to hear this just like we do. The Redeemer has changed his mind, and very quickly, when Boaz told him about this opportunity to, to buy some land, he, he jumped at the chance. But when he learns that that land comes with responsibility to marry Ruth, the Redeemer wants nothing to do with it. Why is that? Okay, what did he say? Look what he said. I can't redeem the land for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So, just redeeming the land would have helped his inheritance, but redeeming the land and marrying Ruth would have hurt his inheritance. How does that work? Why is that? Okay. Well, if he, if he just buys the land, then he may have to take care of Naomi as she ages, but the benefit from the land is going to more than make up for that, and this land will become a permanent part of his own inheritance since the line of Elimelech is gone. That land never has to be returned to them. Okay? However, if he redeems the land and he marries Ruth and she has a child, then the Redeemer has to care for Ruth, for Naomi, for the child. And on top of all that expense, Ruth's child would eventually inherit the redeemed land anyway. So if the Redeemer redeems the land and marries Ruth, his own inheritance is not going to get any bigger. In fact, just as he said, redeeming the land would probably hurt his inheritance or, or impair it. The Redeemer is not wrong. He's not mistaken. The cost of this redemption is real, and he's just not willing to pay it. Now, I don't know how hard to be on the Redeemer. Okay? We aren't told that he was this wicked, penny-pinching, Scrooge-type character, although I think we like to imagine him that way. It's not exactly what it says. He was not required to redeem and remember last night when Boaz was talking to Ruth, he said to her, basically, this guy might want to redeem and he might not. We just have to find out. So him refusing to do this was definitely something that Boaz thought was possible. All we know is that this redemption would be costly. And this redeemer chose not to pay the cost. But now that we know that it's costly, the redeemer's decision not to pay that cost only increases our admiration for Boaz, who wants to pay that cost. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. All right, so clearly this storyteller is writing many years after these events actually happened. And so he has to explain what's about to take place. I mean, the Redeemer is about to reach down and take off his shoe and hand it to Boaz. Okay, kids, this is what's happening in the picture that you're coloring. There's a guy there. You notice he only has one sandal on. The other sandal is in his hand, and he's handing it to Boaz. Okay, why? We don't do that today. If you're in sales, anybody in sales, do you close your deals this way? You should try that next time. And then explain, see, this is not what we do. This is not our culture not our customs, okay? And a good author helps his audience understand the cultural customs seen in his work. So this act shows that the responsibility and right of redemption has been transferred from the Redeemer to Boaz. All right, verse 8. 
So when the redeemer said to Bo- so when the redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it for yourself," he drew off his sandal and presumably gave it to Boaz. Verse nine. Then Boaz, who is now the redeemer, said to the elders and all the people. So apparently, a crowd has gathered now. Boaz says, "You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the land or from the hand of Naomi." All that belong to Elimelech, and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now, I want you to notice, in this ceremony, Boaz is not buying anything. He has not bought the land from the Redeemer. Rather, he is receiving and claiming the rights and responsibilities of being the Redeemer for Elimelech's family line and for his land. And then presumably in the days ahead, ahead, he will actually go through with the the real purchase. But the land purchase is not what the author cares that much about. He's much more interested in Boaz's other responsibility, the one to preserve Elimelech's family line in the land by marrying Ruth. Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this crowd of witnesses that has been watching all this takes place, take place, they wish three blessings upon Boaz and Ruth. Did you catch them? Number one, the crowd wishes upon Ruth the blessing of many, many children with Boaz. Number two. The crowd wishes upon Boaz the blessing of being a worthy man who is renowned in Bethlehem. And number three, the crowd wishes upon Boaz the blessing of a great line of descendants like the line from Perez. Does anybody know who Perez is? Perez was the firstborn son of a famous Leverite-type marriage in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Genesis 38. It was a very different situation. It was long before God had given his law about Leverite marriage. But again, it was a situation where the firstborn son of of that Leverite marriage, uh, his name was Perez. And his line became the leading line in the tribe of Judah. And so the crowd is wishing upon Boaz the blessing of a line as prominent as the one that came from a previous famous Leverite marriage. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and nine months later, she bore a son. Now, this is only the second time in the entire story of Ruth that God is explicitly said to do something. Now, he's been doing things the whole time, don't get me wrong, but there's only two actions that the storyteller actually says God did. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 6, when God visits his people and gives them crops. He gives life to the land to end the uncertainty about the nation's future. And the second action that God does is here at the end, in chapter 4, verse 13, when he visits Ruth and gives her a son. 
He gives life to her womb, and he ends the uncertainty about her family's future. And remember, she had been married before for like maybe 10 years, and there had been no children born to her and Malon. And so now both the land in chapter 1 and Ruth's womb in chapter 4, in both of these cases, God brings life or resurrection where there has been death. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, who is the redeemer that the women are talking about? Okay. Is it Boaz? Okay. Keep reading. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So the redeemer that the crowd is talking about is the son born to Ruth. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So the women of the city are calling Ruth's son Naomi's redeemer. Boaz has taken care of the, the legal issues, but Ruth's son is the restoration of her family line. And Ruth's son was given by God, which means that God has given life to the land. He's given life to to Ruth's womb. And now he's given life to Elimelech's line, which was essentially dead. So the women of the city are celebrating Ruth's son, but they're also celebrating Ruth. Now, do you remember when, when Naomi and Ruth first walked into Bethlehem back in chapter 1. The previous 10 years had been so hard for Naomi that the women of the city who knew her from previously barely recognized her. They said, is is this Naomi? In Naomi's mind, God had completely turned against her. She had gone out full and God had brought her back empty. But nothing could have been further from the truth. And now at the end of the story, there is no doubt There's no doubt that that the the last 10 years of her life have been hard. We don't want to minimize a mother's pain in losing her husband and her two adult sons. But, But even when Naomi's life looked empty, God had not abandoned her. What what no one else could see back in chapter 1 was that Ruth would be God's means for bringing life and fullness to Naomi, who was surrounded by death. But now everyone sees it. I mean, look at what the women of the city say in verse 15. They say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. That is quite a statement in a culture where the family line carrying on inheritance through the sons is everything. Now, let's finish the story. Look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him, Ruth's son, a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Now, What if the story ended right there? Like that was the last word in the story of Ruth. It would still be a great story. I think we would still love the story. But I think we'd be less certain about the connection of this story to the rest of God's word and the rest of what he is doing. Remember, there's there's no kings in this book. Uh, There's no prophets. There's no priests. Ruth is a story about just one family in the land of Israel. Have you ever had this experience where where someone's telling you a story and the whole time that they're talking, you're thinking to yourself, why in the world are they telling me this story? And so you just keep nodding and smiling that you love this story, 
But the whole time you're like, what is the connection? Why do I need to know this? Right? And then at the very end of the story, what does the friend do? They add this little piece of information. You're like, oh, that's it. Wow, that's an amazing story. I love that story. Okay? But it's that little thing at the end that shows how it connects to everything else. The story of Ruth is a great story. But what the storyteller adds at the very end makes his purpose in telling the story crystal clear. Look at verse 17 again. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now look at the genealogy in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, we learn a couple things in this genealogy. One of them is we learn that, we learn that Boaz is already in the line of Perez. So that's interesting. We didn't know that. But more importantly, we are told explicitly about a connection between the story of Ruth, which is a very small story about a, uh, an obscure family in Israel. We now know about a connection between that story and God's larger plan, the larger story of his word. In the story of Ruth, God preserved not just any family line from destruction, but the family line from which King David would come. All right, so that's the end of the story, the end of the book of Ruth. What do we do with this story? We always ask this question at the end, what do we do? And usually, when we get to this point, we ask the question, where is God? And that's always a great question to ask as you come to the end of a passage and you don't know what to do with it, where is God? But this time, I want us to see God by asking a slightly different question, and that is this. What does the author want us to notice in chapter 4? And I think there are at least three things, three things the author wants us to notice in chapter 4. First, we have to notice Boaz again, all right? Now, now, a few times I've mentioned that other than God, Boaz is the only redeemer in the Old Testament. But I want to I say that a little more precisely this week or this time because there are other redeemers in the Bible. In fact, there's one in our text today. Obed is called a redeemer. But when it comes to the, the kind of redemption that a man does on behalf of his close relative, that does seem to be something that's incredibly rare in the Old Testament. But even in that, Boaz is not completely alone. The prophet Jeremiah redeems a piece of land, a field, from his cousin Hanamel because Jeremiah was his closest relative. You can read about it in Jeremiah 32. But of course, when you, when you take all of this together, the, the redemption of the land and the marrying of Ruth, there's just no one else in the Bible that faces such a scenario and responds the way that Boaz does, and he's unique in that sense. In chapter 2, his kindness to Ruth, the foreigner, surprised us. In chapter 3, his, his trustworthy and self-denying character reassured us. And now in chapter 4, the storyteller wants us to look at Boaz again, this time by comparing Boaz to this could-have-been redeemer, the guy who could have been a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi but chose not to. And this comparison only further highlights Boaz's readiness to deny himself, the same character we saw last night, at the threshing floor. And now again this morning, he's ready to do it again. And this guy never stops sacrificing himself for
for the good of Ruth, for the good of others. He's ready to pay the price so that Ruth can have the rest that she needs and so that the names of Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion are not cut off from the land. The, the could-have-been-redeemer doesn't seem to care enough about those names, and perhaps that's why the storyteller didn't tell us his name. Now, we could say a lot more about Boaz. Okay? He points us clearly to Christ's self-denying kindness to his bride when he gave his life to save his people from sin, bringing life and resurrection where there was only death. And Boaz challenges us to repent of our selfishness and in humility to count each other more significant than ourselves. But we, we have talked a lot about Boaz in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so with the rest of our time, I want to consider two other items. These are the, the second and third thing I believe the author wants us to notice in Ruth 4. The first item was Boaz's character again. And the second item is Ruth's love for Naomi. On a human level, there is a story of Ruth only because Ruth loves Naomi. On a human level, that is the reason. The storyteller was was not too hard on Orpah. Remember, she was the other Moabite daughter-in-law that went back to Moab. But had Ruth been like Orpah, there would be no story of Ruth. Remember, when Naomi prepared to return to Israel, she she told her daughters-in-law to to stay in Moab, and Orpah obeyed, but Ruth clung to Naomi. And Ruth's love for her has appeared all throughout the story. It's been so consistent and, and so obvious and so amazing that the women of the city say that having Ruth for a daughter in law is better than having seven sons. Okay. Now, are these women exaggerating? Yes, this is hyperbole, okay? The women are not saying, okay, Ruth is better than seven sons, but she's not better than eight sons, okay? That's not the point of the statement, okay? The point of their statement is to say that there is nothing like having someone who loves you like Ruth loves Naomi. Ruth has left her home. She has worked day in and day out in the fields. She has put herself in a vulnerable position with Boaz in the middle of the night. And certainly from some of those things, Ruth definitely secured some benefit. But who always benefits when Ruth acts every single time? It's always Naomi. She benefits from every single thing that Ruth does. There is nothing like having someone who loves you like Ruth loves Naomi. Do you have someone like that in your life? Maybe you thought of your spouse or a close friend or an an adult child or a parent. Someone who just, no matter what, always loves you. If that's the case, praise the Lord for that gift. God has put that person in your life, life just the way he put Ruth in Naomi's life. Praise the Lord for that person. Be that person in someone else's life. Look at how God used Ruth's love for Naomi. But now I'm sure, or I would venture to guess, that not everyone here could think of someone like that. Maybe you wish you had thought of your spouse, but you didn't. You felt like you couldn't. Or you wish you had a friend or a parent like that, but you don't. And the story of Ruth is, for you, a painful reminder of how how wonderful it would be if you had even one person who loved you like that. 
And so I want to encourage you today that you have a God like that. Remember, Ruth was just the means of God's love for Naomi. And the God who put Ruth in Naomi's life is the same God who loves you this morning. In fact, you have a God who loves you even better than Ruth loved Naomi. You have a God who loves you better than any spouse could ever love you, better than any friend could ever love you. Jesus, God's son, died to save you from your sin and reconcile you to God. And even today, who benefits every time that God acts? You do. Because everything he does is for the good of those who love him. And so it's my prayer today that you would be fully convinced that nothing is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And fully convinced that there could be no better reality than that. The women of the city said that Ruth, who who loved Naomi, was better than seven sons. But the truth for us today is that God, who loves you, is better than whatever love or whatever thing you wish you had. Now, very quickly, the third thing we need to notice from Ruth is obviously this genealogy. Okay, Why is it here? What do we do with it? Well, for one, it, it connects this, this milestone event of David's rise, the life of King David, with everyday events in an obscure family in Israel. But the genealogy also shows that David descended from Ruth, a Moabite. And so the story of Ruth explains this crazy reality that, that the greatest king in Israel's history could descend from a non-Israelite woman. I mean, how does that even happen? Ruth answers that story. The genealogy does, does both of these things, but, but what are we supposed to do with it? Right? What does it teach us about God? Okay, there, are, there are three things that it teaches us about the way God works out his plan, and then it tells us about God's plan itself. Okay, so first, three things that this genealogy teaches us about the way that God works out his plan. Number one, this genealogy teaches us that God does not stop working out his plan when his plan is not wanted. You might think that, that God would, would step back from his plan when his people go hard after sin. But remember, the, the period of the judges, when the story of Ruth happens, the period of the judges is famous for being the time when everyone rejected God's plan and did what was right in their own eyes. But even then, even when it was so dark in Israel, The genealogy at the end of Ruth's story shows that God was still at work to save his people. Even when people don't care about his plan or even want him to save them, God is at work. Our zeal for the plan of God does not determine his zeal in the way he works it out. Secondly, this genealogy teaches us that God does not work out his plan only as needed. You might think that that God is the kind of God that occasionally, as he's watching from afar, occasionally he reaches down and intervenes in human history, just kind of as needed. Maybe he reaches down at like really strategic moments and he gives this major victory or he he provides in this extra extra special way and then he steps back again. And of course, God does great things like that. But the genealogy at the end of Ruth's story shows that God works out his plan also in the everyday events of everyday life. 
like the life of a widow who has lost her husband and her two adult sons. God does not occasionally intervene to kind of reach down and steer human history a little bit. Okay? Rather, he is always at work in everything. He's at work today in your life to work out his plan. And third, this genealogy teaches us that God does not always use larger-than-life public figures or miraculous events to advance his plan. The Old Testament is full of big names like Abraham and Moses and David. And it's full of big events like the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and the battle of Jericho. But in the story of Ruth, there's none of that. There's no big names and there's no big events. And yet this genealogy shows that God's plan moved forward without those big things. How did it do that? In the story of Ruth, God works out his plan through his people's simple acts of faithfulness. Boaz and Ruth just keep doing the right thing, and God's plan unfolds. If you're wondering how God's going to continue working out his plan in your life, don't wait for something big and flashy to happen. Just keep doing the right thing. Be faithful to him, and God will work out his plan. Who knows? Maybe through your faithful actions during this challenging season, God will do something amazing that you'll never even see. Just like Boaz and Ruth maybe never even saw the connection between their actions and the rise of God's greatest king of the Old Testament. All right, so those are three things that the genealogy teaches us about the way that God works out his plan. But what does it tell us about the plan itself? Okay. God's plan is to redeem Israel like he redeemed Naomi. He did it in the Exodus, and he's going to do it again. Now, in chapter 1, remember, Naomi, like Israel, is, is all but dead. Okay? But by the end of chapter 4, God has restored Naomi to life. And how did he do it? He brought Naomi to life through exceptional love and through redeemers. That's right, I said redeemers, plural. Okay? Redeemer Boaz, he pays the redemption price to secure the land and marry Ruth. Redeemer Obed is, the, is, like in himself, is the restored line of Naomi's family. He is her future. He is her life. But at the end of the Ruth story, while Naomi has been brought to life, Israel has not. It's still the period of the judges. Israel is dead in sin. And so the genealogy introduces a third redeemer, King David, a redeemer whose, whose reign will bring life and hope to the nation of Israel. But of course, just as death came to Israel and to Naomi, death will come to David as well. And I don't just mean that he dies, although he does die. I mean that he kills, he murders, and he commits adultery. And so there must be a fourth redeemer. This fourth redeemer would be like redeemer Obed, for he would be born in Bethlehem, and he would be like redeemer Boaz, for he would pay the price of redemption so that he could be the life-giving king that redeemer David could never be. And just like the redemption we see in the story of Ruth, the redemption of this fourth redeemer is for more than just the people of Israel. It is for the people of all nations who will, like Ruth, turn away from their false gods and their idols and turn to the God of Israel. This fourth redeemer is Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, born to die, 
born to redeem his people, to pay the price of the penalty our sins deserve before God. But he was raised to life, to reign forever, and to welcome through himself to God anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him. This is the plan that God was working on in Naomi's life. And it's the same plan he is working out today. Not just out there on a big, grand scale, but right here among us in the everyday events of your everyday life. Every day. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he is bringing us from from empty to full. He is bringing us from death to life. In Christ, we know the fullness of forgiveness from God, of communion with God, of growth in Christ-likeness, of fellowship with our brothers and sisters, and of hope for a complete restoration in the future. We came into this world empty, sinful, and condemned. But our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, paid the price to make us full. And so let us praise his name this morning. Let us glory in our Redeemer, as we sang earlier. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the story of Ruth. But we thank you even more for how this story prepared the way for our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. As Zechariah prophesied in Luke 1 when he celebrated his son John and the one for whom John would prepare the way, Lord, you have given us salvation in the forgiveness of our sins because of your tender mercies. The sunrise has visited us from on high. You have given light to us who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. You are guiding our feet into the way of peace, all through the redemption you have provided for us through your Son. And so as we pray in his name, amen.